Section 29 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12 The Repeal Year, Part 3. The crowds who attended the monster meetings came in a sort of military order and with a certain parade of military discipline. At the meeting held on the hill of Tara, where O'Connell stood beside the stone said to have been used for the coronation of the ancient monarchs of Ireland, it is declared on the authority of careful and unsympathetic witnesses that a quarter of a million people must have been present. The government naturally felt that there was a very considerable danger in the massing together of such vast crowds of men in something like military array, and under the absolute leadership of one man, who openly avowed that he had called them together to show England what was the strength her statesmen would have to fear if they continued to deny repeal to his demand. It is certain now that O'Connell did not at any time mean to employ force for the attainment of his ends, but it is equally certain that he wished the English government to see that he had the command of an immense number of men, and probably even to believe that he would, if needs were, hurl them in rebellion upon England if ever she should be embarrassed with a foreign war. It is certain, too, that many of O'Connell's most ardent admirers, especially among the young men, were fully convinced that some day or other their leader would call on them to fight, and were much disappointed when they found that he had no such intention. The government at last resolved to interfere. A meeting was announced to be held at Clontarf on Sunday, October 8, 1843. Clontarf is near Dublin and is famous in Irish history as the scene of a great victory of the Irish over their Danish invaders. It was intended that this meeting should surpass in numbers and in earnestness the assemblage at Tara. On the very day before the 8th, the Lord Lieutenant issued a proclamation prohibiting the meeting as calculated to excite reasonable and well-grounded apprehension, in that its object was to accomplish alterations in the laws and constitutions of the realm by intimidation and the demonstration of physical force. O'Connell's power over the people was never shown more effectively than in the control which at that critical moment he was still able to exercise. The populations were already coming to Clontorf in streams from all the country round when the proclamation of the Lord Lieutenant was issued. No doubt the Irish government ran a terrible risk when they delayed so long the issue of their proclamation. With the people already assembling in such masses, the risk of a collision with the police and the soldiery, and of a consequent massacre, is something still shocking to contemplate. It is not surprising, perhaps, if O'Connell and many of his followers made it a charge against the government that they intended to bring about such a collision in order to make an example of some of the repealers and thus strike terror through the country. Some sort of collision would almost undoubtedly have occurred, but for the promptitude of O'Connell himself. He at once issued a proclamation of his own to which the populations were likely to pay far more attention than they would to anything coming from Dublin Castle. O'Connell declared that the orders of the Lord Lieutenant must be obeyed, that the meeting must not take place, and that the people must return to their homes. 
the uncrowned king as some of his admirers loved to call him was obeyed and no meeting was held from that moment however the great power of the repeal agitation was gone the government had accomplished far more by their proclamation than they could possibly have imagined at the time they had without knowing it compelled o'connell to show his hand it was now made clear that he did not intend to have resort to force from that hour there was virtually a schism between the elder repealers and the younger the young and fiery followers of the great agitator lost all faith in him it would in any case have been impossible to maintain for any very long time the state of national tension in which ireland had been kept it must soon come either to a climax or to an anticlimax it came to an anticlimax all the imposing demonstrations of physical strength lost their value when it was made positively known that they were only demonstrations and that nothing was ever to come of them the eye of an attentive foreigner was then fixed on ireland and on o'connell the eye of one destined to play a part in the political history of our time which none other has surpassed count cavour had not long returned to his own country from a visit made with the express purpose of studying the politics and the general condition of england and ireland he wrote to a friend about the crisis then passing in ireland when one is at a distance he said from the theatre of events it is easy to make prophecies which have already been contradicted by facts but according to my view o'connell's fate is sealed on the first vigorous demonstration of his opponents he has drawn back from that moment he has ceased to be dangerous cavour was perfectly right it was never again possible to bring the irish people up to the pitch of enthusiasm which o'connell had wrought them to before the suppression of the clontarf meeting and before long the irish national movement had split in two the government at once proceeded to the prosecution of o'connell and some of his principal associates daniel o'connell himself his son john the late sir john gray and sir charles gavin duffy were the most conspicuous of those against whom the prosecution was directed they were charged with conspiring to raise and excite disaffection among her majesty's subjects to excite them to hatred and contempt of the government and constitution of the realm the trial was in many ways a singularly unfortunate proceeding the government prosecutor objected to all the catholics whose names were called as jurors an error of the sheriffs in the construction of the jury lists had already reduced by a considerable number the role of catholics entitled to serve on the juries it therefore happened that the greatest of irish catholics the representative catholic of his day the principal agent in the work of carrying catholic emancipation was tried by a jury composed exclusively of protestants it has only to be added that this was done in the metropolis of a country essentially catholic a country five-sixths of whose people were catholics and on a question affecting indirectly if not directly the whole position and claims of catholics the trial was long o'connell defended himself and his speech was universally regarded as wanting the power that had made his defence of others so effective in former days 
it was for the most part a sober and somewhat heavy argument to prove that ireland had lost instead of gained by her union with england the jury found o'connell guilty along with most of his associates and he was sentenced to twelve months imprisonment and a fine of two thousand pounds the others received lighter sentences o'connell appealed to the house of lords against the sentence in the meantime he issued a proclamation to the irish people commanding them to keep perfectly quiet and not to commit any offence against the law every man said one of his proclamations who is guilty of the slightest breach of the peace is an enemy of me and of ireland the irish people took him at his word and remained perfectly quiet o'connell and his principal associates were committed to richmond prison in dublin the trial had been delayed in various ways and the sentence was not pronounced until may twenty fourth eighteen forty four the appeal to the house of lords we may pass over intermediate stages of procedure was heard in the following september five new lords were present the lord chancellor lord lyndhurst and lord brougham were of opinion that the sentence of the court below should be affirmed lord denman lord cottenham and lord campbell were of opposite opinion lord denman in particular condemned the manner in which the jury lists had been prepared some of his words on the occasion became memorable and passed into a sort of proverbial expression such practices he said would make of the law a mockery a delusion and a snare a strange and memorable scene followed the constitution of the house of lords then and for long after made no difference between law lords and others in voting on a question of appeal as a matter of practice and of fairness the lay peers hardly ever interfered in the voting on an appeal but they had an undoubted right to do so and it is even certain that in one or two peculiar cases they had exercised the right if the lay lords were to vote in this instance the fate of o'connell and his companions could not be doubtful o'connell had always been the bitter enemy of the house of lords he had vehemently denounced its authority its practices and its leading members nor if the lay peers had voted and confirmed the judgment of the court below could it have been positively said that an injustice was done by their interference the majority of the judges on the writ of error had approved the judgment of the court below in the house of lords itself the lord chancellor and lord brougham were of opinion that the judgment ought to be sustained there would therefore have been some ground for maintaining that the substantial justice of the case had been met by the action of the lay peers on the other hand it would have afforded a ground for a positive outcry in ireland if a question purely of law had been decided by the votes of lay peers against their bitter enemy one peer lord warncliffe made a timely appeal to the better judgment and feeling of his brethren he urged them not to take a course which might allow any one to say that political or personal feeling had prevailed in a judicial decision of the house of lords the appeal had its effect a moment before one lay peer at least had openly declared that he would insist on his right to vote when the lord chancellor was about to put the question in the first instance to ascertain in the usual way whether a division would be necessary several lay peers seemed as if they were determined to vote but the appeal of lord warncliffe settled the matter all the lay peers at once withdrew and left the matter according to the usual course in the hands of the law lords 
the majority of these being against the judgment of the court below it was accordingly reversed and o'connell and his associates were set at liberty the propriety of a lay peer voting on a question of judicial appeal was never raised again so long as the appellate jurisdiction of the house of lords was still exercised in the old and now obsolete fashion nothing could well have been more satisfactory and more fortunate in its results than the conduct of the house of lords the effect upon the mind of the irish people would have been deplorable if it had been seen that o'connell was convicted by a jury on which there were no roman catholics and that the sentence was confirmed not by a judicial but by a strictly political vote of the house of lords as it was the influence of the decision which proved that even in the assembly most bitterly denounced by o'connell he could receive fair play was in the highest degree satisfactory it cannot be doubted that it did something to weaken the force of o'connell's own denunciations of saxon treachery and wrongdoing the influence of o'connell was never the same after the trial many causes combined to bring about this result most writers ascribe it above all to the trial itself and the evidence it afforded that the english government were strong enough to prosecute and punish even o'connell if he provoked them too far it is somewhat surprising to find intelligent men like mr green the author of a short history of the english people countenancing such a belief if the house of lords had by the votes of the lay peers confirmed the sentence on o'connell he would have come out of his prison at the expiration of his period of sentence more popular and more powerful than ever had his strength and faculty of agitation lasted he might have agitated thenceforth with more effect than ever if the clontarf meeting had not disclosed to a large section of his followers that his policy after all was only to be one of talk he might have come out of prison just the man he had been the leader of all classes of catholics and nationalists but the real blow given to o'connell's popularity was given by o'connell himself the moment it was made clear that nothing was to be done but agitate and that all the monster meetings the crowds and banners and bands of music the marshalling and marching and reviewing meant nothing more than father matthew's temperance meetings meant that moment all the youth of the movement fell off from o'connell the young men were very silly as after events proved o'connell was far more wise and had an infinitely better estimate of the strength of england than they had but it is certain that the young men were disgusted with the kind of gigantic sham which the great agitator seemed to have been conducting for so long a time it would have been impossible to keep up forever such an excitement as that which got together the monster meetings such heat cannot be brought up to the burning point and kept there at will a reaction was inevitable o'connell was getting old and had lived the life of work and wear and tear enough to break down even his constitution of iron he had kept a great part of his own followers in heart as he had kept the government in alarm by leaving it doubtful whether he would not in the end make an appeal to the reserve of physical force which he so often boasted of having at his back when the whole secret was out he ceased to be an object of fear to the one and of enthusiasm to the other it was neither the lord lieutenant's proclamation nor the prosecution by the government that impaired the influence of o'connell 
it was o'connell's own proclamation declaring for submission to the law that dethroned him from that moment the political monarch had to dispute with rebels for his crown and the crown fell off in the struggle like that which ullin tells of in the pretty poem for the clontarf meeting had been the climax there was all manner of national rejoicing when the decision of the house of lords set o'connell and his fellow prisoners free there were illuminations and banquets and meetings and triumphal processions renewed declarations of allegiance to the great leader and renewed protestations on his part that repeal was coming but his reign was over his death may as well be recorded here as later his health broke down and the disputes in which he became engaged with the young irelanders dividing his party into two hostile camps were a grievous burden to him in lord beaconsfield's life of lord george bentick a very touching description is given of the last speech made by o'connell in parliament it was on april third eighteen forty six his appearance says mr disraeli was of great debility and the tones of his voice were very still his words indeed only reached those who were immediately around him and the ministers sitting on the other side of the green table and listening with that interest and respectful attention which became the occasion o'connell spoke for nearly two hours it was a strange and touching spectacle to those who remembered the form of colossal energy and the clear and thrilling tones that had once startled disturbed and controlled senates to the house generally it was a performance in dumb show a feeble old man muttering before a table but respect for the great parliamentary personage kept all as orderly as if the fortunes of a party hung upon his rhetoric and though not an accent reached the gallery means were taken that next morning the country should not lose the last and not the least interesting of the speeches of one who had so long occupied and agitated the minds of nations o'connell became seized with a profound melancholy only one desire seemed left to him the desire to close his stormy career in rome the eternal city is the capital the shrine the mecca of the church to which o'connell was undoubtedly devoted with all his heart he longed to lie down in the shadow of the dome of st peter's and rest there and there die his youth had been wild in more ways than one and he had long been under the influence of a profound penitence he had killed a man in a duel and was through all his after-life haunted by regret for the deed although it was really forced on him and he had acted only as any other man of his time would have acted in such conditions but now in his old and sinking days all the errors of his youth and his strong manhood came back upon him and he longed to steep the painful memories in the sacred influences of rome he hurried to italy at a time when the prospect of the famine darkening down upon his country cast an additional shadow across his outward path he reached genoa and he went no farther his strength wholly failed him there and he died still far from rome on may fifteenth eighteen forty seven the close of his career was a mournful collapse it was like the sudden crumbling in of some stately and commanding tower the other day it seemed he filled a space of almost unequalled breadth and height in the political landscape and now he is already gone even with a thought the rack dislimbs and makes it indistinct 
as water is in water. End of section 29